Good morning, church. I am thankful and humbled by the privilege and responsibility to share with you this morning. I gave a very brief consideration to sharing some of my background, and then I quickly realized that was a waste of time because I am irrelevant. What matters is the glory of God and the Word of God, so we want to get right into sharing that with you all this morning. Children are often asked what they desire to be when they grow up. What they may desire to do as a form of employment when they reach that level of maturity. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> the most common answers are a doctor or a nurse, a policeman, a baseball player, a veterinarian, a farmer, and things of that sort. And there are, however, some uncommon answers as well. One little girl said this, I want to be just like my mommy, except I want to be able to cook. A little boy was seven years old. His response to what he wants to be when he grows up was that. He said, I'm just seven. I just want to be eight. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful simplicity about what the future may be? Another little boy said this. He said, when I grow up, I want to be a ninja chef. <laughs> Yikes. Monday through Thursday, he made this clarifier, though. He said, Monday through Thursday, I'll be a regular chef. And on Friday, I'll turn into a ninja chef. And he also made this qualifier. And don't forget, I'm off on Saturday and Sunday, so don't bother me those days. <laughs> when our son Jake was in kindergarten, his class was asked this question as well. And Jake's response was this. He said, when I grow up, and this is in his annual from that school year, by the way. He said, when I grow up, I want to be a fire hydrant. <laughs> now... We assume, hopefully, that he was trying to say a firefighter. We don't know that with certainty, but apparently his aspirations weren't real high as a little fella when he was growing up. So this would be, this would be my adult son having realized all his childhood dreams. That's a picture of a fire hydrant out in the parking lot, so when you drive by that, just acknowledge Jake when you, when you go out. We've all heard children answer the question about what they want to be when they grow up, and many of them have some unusual answers. A question I've thought about for myself and in preparation for a sharing time this morning is, what should we, disciples of Jesus Christ, what should we desire to be when we grow up or as we are maturing spiritually? There are several real good answers to this. I'll just give you just a couple. I want to be more godly and obedient to the truths of the word of Jesus Christ. I want to be more conformed to the image of Christ. I want to be more selfless and Christ-centered, more filled with or controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. And all these are wonderful biblical answers. In this morning's message, I'd like to offer you another biblical answer, one you may not have thought before about desiring to be. I want to suggest that if we are in the faith, if we are in Jesus Christ, as we mature in our faith, one of our strongest desires should be to become a fork, more specifically, a fork in the road. And I brought this fork as a visual, and I'll explain it a little bit later, but as we walk through our message this morning, I'll explain and develop that challenge um, that I've given, uh, and I've given the message that title, A Fork 
in the road. I, I, I encourage and challenge us to become a fork, but more specifically, to become a fork in the road. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 26. In just a moment, we'll read together Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 18. Acts chapter 26, and we'll read together verses 16 through 18 in just a moment. When the Lord gave us the purpose of life, and we know it as the great commandment from Mark chapter 12, it included two parts. Part one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And though I acknowledge, I recognize, I fail miserably at this command. I can honestly say it is my heart's desire. It never, it never crosses my mind that I want to do something that is unloving towards God conscientiously. My sin, my disobedience to God is from lack of forethought. It's from lack of prioritizing him. It's from lack of fellowship and walking in the spirit. It's never really an I don't care attitude in my disobedience to God. Part two of this purpose of life is a different story. Part two of the purpose of our life is a commandment to love others as you love yourself. Oh my. Love others as myself. Esteem others as more important than myself. Consider others before myself. This is often a tremendous struggle. Sometimes I don't even, don't even like the people that I'm supposed to think this way about. It's so much easier to avoid people than to engage them. So much easier to isolate ourselves than to integrate with people. But please hear this. We cannot impact people for the glory of God if we are disengaged and isolated. We cannot make disciples by avoiding people, though admittedly, admittedly avoiding is often more comfortable, but it's always disobedient to our call to engage. The theme of our message this morning is that a role of all disciples is to be a fork in the road of the spiritual lives of others. If we live our lives as submissive followers of Jesus Christ, if we point people to the cross, we will be a fork in the road for all those with whom we have relationships. People should not know us at any depth or for any length of time and not be confronted with a spiritual fork in the road of their lives. We are called to have our lives to reflect Christ and the cross of Christ so magnificently, to be ambassadors for the kingdom so intentionally that people are faced with no choice but to be introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then to choose to walk down a specific road in the fork of their spiritual lives. Those roads, we know, are two options. The narrow way of following and submitting to Jesus Christ, or the broad way that leads to eternal destruction by rejecting Jesus Christ. Yogi Berra said this, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Now, that's comical, and I believe probably was intended to be because we know who Yogi was, and he was always saying things that were funny. But it misses the entire point of the cliche when you come to a fork in the road because you cannot take it. That's the whole point of a fork in the road. Unless you come to a fork in the road like this, then you could take that one. You could bend over, pick it up, and take it. But when you come to a fork in the road like this one, you don't just take it. 
there's a directional decision that is required. If we're driving our cars and we come to this fork in the road, it would be foolish to continue straight. You're actually given two options in the picture, one way or the other. Choose which road you're going to go down. It forces a directional decision, and I want us to keep that thought in mind as we walk through our text this morning. A fork in the road forces a directional decision, and I believe you'll see from the text God has called you and I to be a spiritual fork in the road for every person that's a part of our lives. When they come in contact with us, they'll realize because of our life, because of our love for Jesus Christ, and because of our love for them, that they're forced to make a decision. Am I going to stay on the road I'm on if I'm unsaved? Am I going to stay on the road I'm on leading to eternal destruction? Or am I going to change paths by choosing the other road when I've come to this fork, which is you and I? Am I going to change paths and follow and submit and surrender to Jesus Christ? If we live our lives as submissive followers of Jesus Christ, if we point people to the cross, we will be a fork in the road for all those with whom we have relationships. People should not know us at any depth or any length without being forced to make that choice. A fork in the road forces a directional decision. B a fork in the road. If you would please stand with me as we read our text together. If you are able, in reference, reverence to God and his word, let's stand together as we read. Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 18. This is Jesus speaking to the Apostle Paul, and he says this, But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are God and there is none else. And I thank you that we still have the liberty to gather together and exalt you and worship you and glorify you simply because of who you are, for you alone are worthy. Father, as I am tasked with the responsibility to open the truths of your word, I pray that you would speak through me because I am painfully aware that there is absolutely nothing of spiritual value that I can share with those who are here gathered to worship you this morning. Outside of your Holy Spirit working in me, and through me. So, Father, I surrender my words, my thoughts, my attitudes to you and to who you are and pray that you alone be glorified for you alone are worthy. We love you, Lord, and praise you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Let me very quickly, if I would, could please review the setting of Acts chapter 26. In Acts 26, Paul is permitted to appear before King Agrippa to make a defense in regard to the accusations that have been made against him concerning the promotion of his faith. He's been arrested for sharing Christ. We'll walk quickly together through a survey, and don't let this scare you, but we'll walk quickly through a survey of the entirety of chapter 26, and I will go very, very quickly, emphasizing in verses 16 and 18 what our call is paralleling what Paul's call was to be a fork in the road of the lives of people that God places in our life. Paul strategically used this opportunity as he stood before King Agrippa to be a fork in the road of his spiritual life. 
in spite of these trying circumstances that Paul was under. His desire was more for the conversion of the king than it was for his own exoneration with these charges that had been leveled against him. Religiously motivated and unwarranted charges. So first, let's see, point number one is Paul's context. We will not take the time, I wish I had the time, but we will not take the time to read through all of the verses together. I just want to point out some very specific thoughts from the chapter and then emphasize verses 16 through 18 together as we have the time. This is Paul's immediate context. He is in front of the king. And let's read verse 2 and 3 together, verses 2 and 3. Paul says this, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. You see the heart of Paul here. He says he was happy for this opportunity. Now think about that with me. He's been arrested. He faces either imprisonment or maybe even death because of his crime of sharing the gospel. And he's been arrested and he goes before the king and he says to him, I'm excited to be here. I'm thankful for this opportunity. The word for happy in the original language is fortunate or extremely blessed. You see, Paul recognized this as an opportunity to be a spiritual fork in the, life of the, in the road of the life of King Agrippa. I believe this is important for us to recognize and understand. Our effectiveness in being a fork in the road in large part is a contingent upon our mindset, recognizing the sovereignty and providence of God in all of our circumstances. That's difficult outside of walking in the spirit. Paul was grateful for this opportunity. I'll share very quickly with you a personal illustration. I had the opportunity back in the year 2000 to take a mission trip to the Ukraine. And I'll spare you all the details for time's sake, but I was arrested at that Ukrainian airport on my way back home. And I was put in a security area uh, and held there for, in my mind, it seemed like a long, long time. But I was arrested and I was back there and I was listening to the Ukrainian people. I didn't speak any Ukrainian. I knew one word, Yabu Bluvas, and that means I love you. And I didn't think they'd want to hear me tell them I love them <laughs> at that time as they were deciding what they were going to do with me. But my first thought and my first prayer was, Father, get me out of here. Because I didn't know if I was going to spend an extended period of time in a Ukrainian prison or what was going to happen. I didn't understand anything they were saying. I knew they were speaking Ukrainian and pointing at me, and that was very uncomfortable. After about 30, 40 minutes, I was still sitting there wondering, and the plane was about to take off, and I was wondering what was going to happen to me. And my prayer began to change. And my prayer, see, I had a six-year-old and an eight-year-old at home and a wife that I've never deserved at home waiting for me, and I was praying fashionably, Father, get me out of here. But my prayer began to change after about 40 minutes, and I said, Father, if there's some reason you want me in a Ukrainian prison, help me to be a light in the lives of these people. Now, I can honestly say I began to pray that, but 90% of my passion in my prayer was still, God, get me out of here, <laughs> because I didn't want to stay in a Ukrainian prison. As you can tell, I'm not in a Ukrainian prison this morning, so I'm thankful that he got me out, but it has to be our mindset. We have to grow and mature in our faith to the point where we see, as Paul did, everything is an opportunity for the gospel. Everything is an opportunity to be a fork in the road of the spiritual lives of the people that God places in our lives. Paul did that 
in this opportunity with King Agrippa. And then verses 4 to 11, we see the pre-conversion context. We won't take the time to read all this, but what we understand is that Paul acknowledges here the depth of his depravity and his persecution of those who are now his brothers and sisters in Christ. We understand that there are no qualifiers as to the level of sin, but as, as a father, there is very little that could hurt me more deeply than someone mistreating my children. And I believe, at least my assessment, is our Heavenly Father would feel the same about us. And that's exactly what Paul, Paul was doing. He was murdering and giving approval to the murder of the children of God. And that's where Paul was when Christ found him. So now we move to point number two, Paul's claim. Look with me at verses 12 through 15. We first see Paul's testimony here. While thus occupied... I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest. At midday, O king, alongside the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. And Paul here, goes, Paul here goes into his testimony. But notice with me the first part of verse 12. He says, while thus occupied. What does that mean? What was Paul in the midst of doing? Paul was in the midst of doing. He was occupied with murdering people for following Christ with murdering our brothers and sisters. In the midst of persecuting to the point of murder the disciples of Christ, this speaks to the abundant and unmerited grace of Jesus Christ. It also speaks to the necessity of the grace that you and I must offer those in our life circles whom we would consider the most vile. If God chooses to save them, and we understand this, there is no one beyond the reach of God's grace, amen? And if God chooses to change the people in our circles who we would consider the most wicked, the most evil, and the most vile, there is no telling how he may use them for his glory. We must allow ourselves to have our eyes open to the reality of the sovereign grace of conversion. Genuine conversion changes people. It changed Paul from murderer to missionary. There is no one in our circles God's grace cannot change. And Paul begins this section, verses 12 through 15, was while I was doing this, while thus occupied, while I was murdering brothers and sisters in Christ, the grace of God through Jesus Christ appeared to me. And then in verses 13 through 15, we find his encounter with Jesus. His encounter with Jesus. He says in verse 14 and when we had all fallen to the ground I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language Saul Saul why are you persecuting me it is hard for you to kick against the goes in verse 15 he said so I said who are you Lord and Jesus response was I am Jesus who you are persecuting I am Jesus Jesus here introduces himself to Paul so that's pretty cool yeah wouldn't, be, wouldn't it be wonderful to have Jesus walk up to you and say, I am Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's pretty cool. But folks, I want to encourage us that you and I must recognize, not only recognize, but we must also acknowledge that Jesus has now given us the role of introducing him to others. Jesus introduced himself to Paul. Jesus isn't planning to introduce himself to the people in your life circles without using you to introduce them to him that's our role that's our responsibility we are called to be a spiritual fork in the lives of the people that God brings into our lives introducing them to Jesus Christ that's what God has called us to do now let's be honest with ourselves we live in a world that is filled with those who espouse a hatred for God and for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and a hatred for the things of God 
We all know that it's difficult when we see the disrespect for all things that are sacred in our culture. When we see the culture making a mockery of our Savior, the culture making a mockery of the scruples and the mores of our faith, when we see the culture's moral and philosophical indoctrination viciously steal the innocence from our youth and the unborn viciously stolen from the womb. It's difficult. It's difficult. Might I say, it's not just difficult, it's impossible for us to love them and to serve them and to be gracious to them in and of our own strength. Outside of the Spirit of God living in us and through us, we will not love others as ourselves. We will not esteem others as more important than ourselves. But this is what God has called us to do, to be a spiritual fork in the lives of these people who think differently than us, who act differently than us. We're called to be a spiritual fork in the lives of these people, some of whom have never been introduced to Jesus Christ, some of whom have never heard his gospel, some of whom have never stood in a fork of a road of the spiritual lives with a decision to make regarding him, and that is what God has called us to. We are to be that spiritual fork in the road of their lives. We are to be the one that introduce them and point them to another way to live through salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what God has called us to do. And then we see in verses 16 and 17, Paul's commission. Paul's commission. Let's read those verses together again. Look with me at verse 16. Jesus saying to Paul, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will, I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. So we pick up the words of Jesus to Paul in verse 16, and he says this to him, rise and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you, I've manifested myself to you, I've made myself known to you, and now that I've done that, rise and stand on your feet because I have a purpose and a plan for your life. When Jesus called Paul to repentance and faith, he also commissioned him to a task, to a role. He was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And when God saves you and I, folks, please grasp this truth. He saves us for the same reason. He has called us to be a mission minister and a witness to the people in our lives, to be a spiritual fork in the road of the peoples of people in our lives. No one should know us for any length of time at any depth without knowing who our Savior is. That's what God has called us to do. He has called us, look at the text with me, rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Jesus tells Paul there is a specific reason that he's made himself known to him. I've called you for a reason. I've saved you for a reason. I've granted you repentance and grace and faith for a reason. And folks, we could all look in the mirror and say the exact same thing. God has saved us for a reason. He's chosen to give us repentance, grace, and faith for a reason. And that reason is to be a fork in the road of the spiritual lives of everybody that we come in contact with. That's what God has called us to, you, to do. And in the text, he tells this to Paul, for this purpose, to point you a minister and a witness. That's our call. That's our commission. That's what God wants us to do, to be a minister and a witness to everyone in our lives. Now, let me take just a moment and share a little bit in depth with you about what this minister and witness means. The word witness is what we get our word martyr from. It's a pretty powerful calling and commission, isn't it? We're called to be willing to die for our faith. 
It's what God called Paul to, and it's what he's called us to. The word minister is very interesting. It's from the, a Greek word that means under rower. It derives its meaning from the military life of the Roman Empire, notably the warships of the Roman Empire, which, as we're told in that ancient world, had a low deck just a foot or so above the water. And in that deck, there were seats of the rowers or the slaves who were, for the most part, chained to these seats. They were impressed into servitude, many of them very educated, knowledgeable people. They were captives who had been taken by the Roman armies. And then in a slightly raised deck above the under rowers deck, the seats where the under rowers were, there, were, uh, there was a, a ship captain or the director. He sat on a chair in the front of the ship where all the rowers could see him as he issued instructions to him. It was this captain of the ship who gave the orders to the rowers, and they had to instantly obey his orders because this was a warship. This wasn't some cruise ship they were on. This was a warship, and the ship had to stop suddenly. At times, it had to back up very quickly, turn to the right or to the left, and be very maneuverable because this ship was at war. And therefore, the duty of the oarsman, the under oarsman, was to instantly obey the word of the captain. And Jesus tells Paul, he made himself known to Paul so that he would serve as an under oarsman following the orders of his captain, his Lord and King, Jesus Christ, his Savior. He says this to Paul, I've made you a minister and a witness. And folks, please understand this. He says the same thing to us. We are to be under oarsmen for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to respond immediately to the orders that our Father, our Savior, gives us in responding to his call to be a witness, a minister and a witness for his glory and for the gospel. That's what he's called us to do. We should be able to adjust, to move rapidly at any command that he gives us, always ready and always willing to be a fork in the spiritual lives of the roads of the people that we come in contact with. That has to be our mindset. We're here for a purpose. Christ appeared to us through the gospel of Christ, through his gracious gift of repentance and faith. He's appeared to us for a reason to make us a minister and a witness for the gospel. Every one of us, without exception, if we know Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are called to be a minister and a witness. Imagine the glory of Christ that would be revealed if every one of us would be obedient to this call in our area. What a difference and what an impact we would make. And folks, we need to understand this as well. I, I know we all do, but we need to grasp this and make application of it. There are people in your lives that no pastor, no deacon, no elder, no Sunday school teacher will ever have contact with. So God has called you to be the minister and witness for the gospel in that person's life. Every one of us are called to this task. Every one of us have this responsibility. Look what he says to, to the Apostle Paul, to whom I now send you. Paul had a specific call to a specific people to whom he was to minister and witness, and you and I do as well. We have a specific call to a specific people. It is those whom the Lord has brought into our lives and those into whose lives he has brought us. Our family, our friends, our co-workers, students, teammates, neighbors, and the cashier at Speedway are all people that God has brought into our lives and that he has brought us into their lives for the purpose of being a minister and a witness for the gospel of Christ. Folks, we need to grasp this truth. You see, Paul's mindset was, 
I'm going to prison. I may be killed for my faith, but let me reorder my thought processes and recognize I'm here for a purpose to be a minister and a witness in front of King Agrippa, and my passion is more for his conversion than my exoneration. That's where the Apostle Paul was. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit most of us, beginning with me, are not quite that spiritually mature yet because we think way too much about how's this going to affect me, how's this going to impact me, what does this mean for me, instead of what does this mean for the glory of God? How can I be used for God's glory, for the grace of Christ? You all have heard this uh, on occasion, and you'll hear more in the next several weeks, uh, about our care-share prayer groups that, that we're desiring to start as a church family. Care-share prayer groups, one of the greatest desires of care-share prayer groups Uh, We're going to uh, desire for people to be together to build more intimate relationships than is likely possible in most of the larger life groups. That's a part of it. A part of it is to prayer for one another and and meet the needs of one another in these groups of 10 to 12. That's a part of of the desire of the CareShare prayer group. But one of the primary desires of the CareShare prayer group is to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ and to pray for opportunities for one another to have gospel conversations with these people in our lives. Each of us have different people who God has called us to be a minister and a witness to and we're going to pray for one another to have those gospel opportunities to know how to instigate gospel conversations to know how to steer the conversations with all the people in our life we're going to pray for each other to do that we're going to name specific people that we're praying for God to open doors to share the gospel with that's a major part of what our care share prayers would be and folks we all need to be in these because we all need to be a fork in the spiritual lives in the road of the spiritual lives of the people that are around us all of us have that call All of us have that responsibility. So this is Paul's commission. Our commission is the same as Paul's. For this purpose, God has called you to make you a minister and a witness and to the people to whom I send you. Now this is Paul's charge. Look with me at verse 18. Here's what Paul is to do or to be used by the Holy Spirit to do in the lives of the people to whom he's called. Here's what you and I are to be used to do in the lives of the people to whom we are called. Verse 18, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Don't you desire, can't you see the passion that Paul had to be that in the life of King Agrippa? And may we pray together that God gives us the same passion to be this person who, to whom, for whom God uses to turn someone and open their spiritually blind eyes so they can see the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from darkness to light and turn from the power of Satan to God. And he will use all of us if we will surrender ourselves to his plan and his purpose for our lives to be a minister and a witness to whom he brings into our lives. In the original language, open their eyes is an aorist verb. It's a pointed action. It's a one-time event. This is conversion. This is salvation. If the Spirit of God opens the eyes of the of the opens the eyes of those who are spiritually blind, they will do what follows in the rest of the verse. If their eyes are opened by the grace of God, they will turn from darkness to light. They will turn from the power of Satan to God, and they will become ministers and witnesses themselves. It is incumbent upon all of us as those who are commanded to make disciples, all of us, to be a fork in the road of the lives of those who are spiritually blind, offering them a spiritual directional decision and forcing them because of our life 
to make that decision. Not the decision to be saved. They may not make that. We can't control that. But we should be a spiritual fork in their life that they have to go around us who's sharing the gospel with them if they're going to stay on the road to eternal destruction. People are spiritually blind. You don't have to turn there with me, but allow me just a moment to read this text to you, if I could, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says this. Therefore, since we have this ministry, we we're just talking about Paul's ministry and his witness from Acts chapter 26. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we, has received, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's important. We need to commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We need to love them so passionately, so selflessly that they ask why. Why do you care about me? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we care. And then verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. That's not the word for under oarsmen, but it's the same principle. Verse 6, for it, is the, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see so much similar language in 2 Corinthians 4 as Jesus used with Paul in Acts chapter 26. And Paul took the instructions from Jesus Christ, he applied it to his life, and he passed it on to the church at Corinth and I'm certain others that he ministered to. Folks, we have to grow to the point where we see the unsaved and all of their life choices all of their behaviors as someone who is spiritually blind. I believe if we see people that way, our attitude will change towards them. I don't know about you folks, but I believe this is true of all of us. I have never been frustrated. I have never been irritated. I've never been angered by a blind person because they could not see. I have allowed myself to be irritated, frustrated, and angered by spiritually blind people because of the way they behave. But if we see people the way God sees them, our attitudes about them will change. Our passion for them and for their need to have their blind eyes opened by the grace of God will become a part of who we are. I've never been upset with somebody because they couldn't see physically. And Jesus gives us this illustration, this comparison, very purposely. We shouldn't be upset with spiritually blind people either. Now, we don't have to like or condone, condone and we never should their actions or behaviors. But we need to love them. They're blind. They need someone to stand in the road of their life and be a fork and say, you don't have to continue down this road. Let me point you in another direction, the direction of the cross of Christ. And that's what God has called every one of us to. And what a world, what a community we'll have if just those of us who are here will become faithful in being what God has called us to be. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. It is our call to seek to be used of God to remove the blinders. We must be about engaging in gospel conversations, conveying the truth, telling people about Jesus, living in such a way as to attract the spiritually thirsty with the water of life. We must desire to be and learn to be 
a fork in the road of every life with whom we have contact so that the spiritually blind, through the work of the Holy Spirit, are pointed in the direction of Jesus. Certainly, we cannot change the direction of anyone. We understand that, right? It's not our role to save people. It's our role to be faithful, to share the gospel so the Spirit of God can save people. And that's what God has called us to do. Jesus isn't introducing himself to people now. He's given us that responsibility to introduce him to people. That's what God has called all of us to do. There was a woman named Rose Crawford who had been blind for 50 years, and she said after her surgery, I just can't believe it, was her statement as the doctors lifted the bandages from her eyes after recovery from this eye surgery in an Ontario hospital. She wept for joy for the first time in her life. A dazzling and beautiful world of form and color greeted eyes that now were able to see. The amazing part about this story, however, is that 20 years of her blindness had been unnecessary. She didn't know that surgical techniques had been developed and that an operation could have restored her vision at the age of 30. She didn't know until she was 50. The doctor said this. She just figured there was nothing that could be done about her condition. Much of her life could have been different. And as I read the news of the account of her case, some questions came to my mind. Why did she continue to assume that her situation was hopeless? Had no one for 20 years told her about the wonderful advances in eye surgery? And then I thought of the plight of those unreached by the gospel. How many will go on living in moral blindness unless we bring them to the Savior? How many in our circles individually are morally blind and God has called you and I to be a witness and a minister to the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives and they're still spiritually blind because we haven't taken the time to share the sight of the Savior with them. Now again, we can't dictate whether or not they repent and come to Christ, but we can dictate whether or not we're obedient to the call to be a witness and a minister. And that's what God has called each of us to we must be a fork in the road, pointing people to Jesus so their blind eyes may be open. That's what our role and responsibility is. So, as we move on for time's sake, uh, if we look at verse 18, let me read that one more time and then we'll finish our text for this morning. Verse 18, this is our challenge, this is the charge for all of us to open their eyes, to be used by God to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, listen, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. I trust that every one of us who are saved are thankful for the opportunity to receive grace and mercy and forgiveness of sins. And that's what we're called to offer to the other people in our lives. And an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith and me. And then we have point number five is Paul's challenge, verses 19 to 23. Look at verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I did what Christ called me to do, what he commissioned me to do, what he commanded me to do. Verse 20, but declared first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that all should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. That's the gospel. That's what we're called to share people and to challenge people to do. Repent, turn to God, and live like you're a different person because if you're saved, you are a different person. This is where we have to be a spiritual fork in the lives of those whom God brings into our life. This is Paul's challenge. Repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. 
the church that I pastored in Ohio before we came here, there was one other pastor and we had one more gentleman on our pastoral team. And we got together at the beginning of 2020 and we brainstormed for months about how can we boil down the gospel to its most simple form? What do people have to understand, have to believe if they're truly going to repent and be converted? And we, we came up with three triplets and I'll be happy to share this with you sometime. But these are some of the things we can share with the people who come into our lives. You have to believe that who the person is, the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and then you have to repent, believe, and confess your faith. And that's the, the minimum of what people have to understand, and that's what God calls us to share with people. And Paul's challenge, as we see in this text, was that they would repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance. That was the challenge. Finally, we see Paul's critics Look with me at verses 24 through 32. Paul says this, or the scripture says this, Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. So we see Paul's critics. He's accused of being mad. And then this is important for us to understand as we begin to allow the Spirit of God to use us as a spiritual fork in people's lives. We have no evidence. There's nothing in this text that... that calls us to believe that. There's no evidence we found anywhere that King Agrippa ever was converted, that he ever repented of his sin and received Christ. We don't have any evidence that that ever took place. So does that mean Paul wasn't faithful? Does that mean Paul didn't do what God called him to do? No, we know that's not true. Paul was faithful in sharing the gospel. He was more concerned about the conversion of Agrippa than he was about his own exoneration. Paul was very faithful. I think this is part of what prohibits us oftentimes from being faithful in sharing the gospel ourselves. We've allowed ourselves to get in the mindset that unless I lead a person to a repentance and faith decision, unless I pray with him about a commitment to Jesus Christ, I haven't been faithful, so I'm just not going to do it at all. That's wrong thinking. That's not what God calls us to do. We can see that from this text. Paul was faithful in being the witness and minister God had called him to be, and you and I can be as well. But we need to be desiring of sharing gospel conversations, and that's some of the things that our Care Share prayer groups are going to emphasize. I've put together a working definition of what, it, what does it mean to be involved in a gospel conversation? What does it mean to share a gospel conversation? This is a working definition, but let me share this with you, and then we'll conclude our time together today. Because this is what God has called us to to be a witness and a minister of the gospel for those whom we have relationships with. A gospel conversation is one, in which, is one in which the desire is to direct the conversation to spiritual truths. It's to plant seeds enabling the development of spiritual conversation. It's to express genuine care or concern for the one to whom we speak. To build bridges in which a clear presentation of the gospel can be presented. Listen, grab this, this truth. The goal of outreach is to engage in gospel conversations. Now, obviously, the ultimate goal is for people to repent and come to Christ. That's why we're doing it. But our responsibility is to seek to engage people in gospel conversations. There will be times when, how can I pray for you? Or let me know if I can help is the extent of that gospel conversation. But you've been faithful in seeking to steer your conversation with people to the gospel. There will be other occasions 
where the conversation will lead directly to interrogatives concerning Christ and the gospel can be clearly delineated. Only the Holy Spirit knows where that person's heart is at the time. We don't, and our responsibility is to be faithful and available to what, however God wants to use us in that conversation. The goal of our outreach is to initiate gospel conversations and allow the Holy Spirit to guide that conversation however he chooses to do so. One of the things that Laura and I have done uh, over the past several years is try to initiate gospel conversations with servers at restaurants. And we open the door simply by saying, we're going to pray and ask God's blessing and thank God for our meal. Is there any way that I can pray for you? Now, as of yet, we've never been ridiculed or criticized. We have been turned down. No, I'm good. And my, my pastoral response wants to say, there are none good. No, not one. Let me pray for you. But no one has ever been angry, no one's ever been agitated, and on many, many occasions we've heard life stories about people who desperately want us to pray for them. And it's simply opening a door. And one of our goals is to find a restaurant that Laura and I can, can frequent often so we can develop a friendship and a relationship with specific servers who don't know us from Adam, but we can be a spiritual fork in the road of their lives. Because that's what God has called us to do. So being a spiritual fork, a fork in the road is always a directional decision. Salvation in Christ is a directional decision for the unsaved. They must, by grace through faith and the repentance that's granted to them by God, turn off of the broad road and onto the narrow road. And you and I are called to be the fork in the spiritual lives of people, putting them in the position through loving them with our lives and loving them with our words that they have to walk around us if they're going to stay on the broad road that leads to destruction. And we have to point them to the availability of the narrow road of faith in Jesus Christ. We must present them with a directional decision. We need to be a fork in the road of people's lives. Here's our directional decision this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be in being used for the glory of God? My challenge this morning is that we surrender and submit ourselves to become a fork, a spiritual fork in the lives of people. I believe the Lord led me to choose this illustration as a fork because my prayer is that none of us will ever see a fork the same way again. We all use these every day. Some of us use them too often every day. <laughs> but we all use these every day. So when you see a fork, say a simple prayer. Father, use me as a spiritual fork in the lives of people. That's our directional decision this morning. Are we willing to submit and obey to what God has called us to do? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are a gracious and merciful God. There is absolutely nothing about me, there never has been, there never will be, that warrants or merits your grace, but I praise you and thank you, Father, that you've granted me repentance and faith because of your grace. And Father, I thank you for who you are and what you've called us to do. And Father, I am so blessed to be able to share with these folks this morning, and I pray that directional decisions will be made for every one of us. If there are those here who've never repented and received Christ, I pray that that would be the directional decision, that this message has been a spiritual fork in their life. And Father, for the rest of us who genuinely are saved, I pray that you would so empower and convict and burden our hearts to the power of your spirit that today is the day, if we haven't been doing it in the past, that today is the day that we would ask you to use us as a spiritual fork, pointing people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and praise you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.